Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. In the May issue, novelist Sam Lipsight was sent on a mission to the Erotic Heritage Museum in Las Vegas, Nevada, where he contemplated the uneasy journalistic sacrifice of getting intimate with the museum's resident sex robot, Emma. He also attended academic presentations on the future and ethics of digisexuality, a new identity term coined by researchers Neil MacArthur and Marky Twist, who are aiming to preemptively destigmatize a coming wave of sexuality not rooted in human relationships. It's a tale too ticklish to summarize here. Gambling, compulsion, and true love between two fleshpots figure prominently in this story, which I suggest you read immediately. In this episode of the Harper's Podcast, I talked to Sam about the deeper implications of digisexuality, what it means to create an identity label, how more digital sex could harm and help society, and the understandable impulse to escape into, in Lipsight's hard-to-forget phrasing, quote, the warm, sticky horse carcass of technological intimacy. You know, Sam Lipsight, sex robots, these things don't necessarily go together, and yet... So could you talk about how this piece came about and why do you think you were the man picked for the job? Well, it's funny you should ask that because uh, I've been wondering myself. (laughs) (laughs) The piece came about because uh, an editor at Harper's named Elizabeth Bryant called me and asked me if I'd be interested in pursuing this topic. She had already published, I guess, or the magazine had published a snippet from something that Marky Twist had, from I think a talk she had given about digisexuality. And so Elizabeth just wanted to know if I was interested in kind of talking to Marky and finding out more about this idea. And and then she had uh, sort of already done some legwork figuring out that there could be an occasion where I could go to this museum in Las Vegas and uh, meet these academics and possibly meet the the sex bot and and um and so really it was elizabeth's brainchild and why she chose me i still don't know and i've asked her several times <laughs> and i think it has something to do with you know the fact that i'm just this pathetic guy and i would be the right <laughs> the right person to go go into this potentially humiliating uh situation All right, well, you do not know the answer to the ask i do not <sighs> Terrible. Okay. Toward the beginning of the piece, you allude briefly to the familiar and perennial nature of the dream that digisexuality embodies. And as you describe it, it, it's a dream of, quote, a mostly taboo-free realm of carnal diversity where nearly anything goes except perhaps intimacy with other people, end quote. And you go on to say versions of this dream have flowed from the minds of artists, philosophers, engineers for decades if not centuries. So what specific examples did you have there? Because certainly everyone knows what you're talking about, but going into it, who or what were you thinking of? Well, we have movies as, you know, as recently as made as Ex Machina, I guess, the Alex Garland film, but we have certainly going back to mythology, we have so many examples of sort of the animation of inorganic matter into, into being sometimes sexualized. And the idea of, you know, the artist creating sort of a a partner or an object of desire just through the craft of, of the artistry is, I think, something that, you know, people have played with for a long time. Pygmalion, I guess, comes to mind. And, you know, I guess 
I was also thinking of the ways that uh, you know AI has been imagined for so long. I mean, I guess that's the that's ex machina, but also even going back to science fiction all the way from the twenty, you know, early twentieth century. So I don't know if I had too many particular examples in mind, but I, I was sort of thinking along those lines. It seems very serendipitous that this talk by these specific uh, digisexual experts happened to occur in Las Vegas, which of course is this totally ar artificial city made by the mob, controlled by the mob for, you know, maybe, maybe not now, who's to say, neither here nor there, but that, you know, this is a simulacrum of, of something. This is a manufactured thing. And that you would go to this talk about the idea of creating something very, you know, a simulation of something. So I guess it, it seems almost like fiction, but the other component of it being that digisexuality and whatever it turns into is going to be shaped by something, by a different sort of mob, which is Silicon Valley. And the people who currently control how technology is developed. Because in, in the past, it's been, you know, sex has rushed into technologies, be it, you know, movies being a big example. But this way, judging from things you've written in your piece, it seems like Mark Zuckerberg has no plans to have fucking in the metaverse, which seems like a critical error. And yet. Yes. I mean, first of all, I really don't know what they're developing without telling us. So right. that's that. And I'm not, you know, making any uh, claims about that. I'm just, who knows? I did. I was talking to a friend who's more in, involved in that world. And, and I said something about how, well, you know, the big, big tech's not really working on this. And he said, how do you know? You know, mm. and so not to get all conspiracy minded about it, but you have to think they're thinking about it because they don't want Pornhub to own it all someday. So who knows? And I think it's the same way that, you know, as drugs get legalized, companies have been planning on how to market them forever. And, you know, weed will, as soon as it's legal everywhere, will be marketed the way cigarettes were. And so I think that you got to assume they're getting ready. But I don't know what they're not doing anything right now to help, at least on the outside, visibly to develop the tech. And that's something that Neil MacArthur, one of the people I talked to, was most concerned with that this what he sees as a kind of vital social experiment is not getting its chance because it, it's not getting the right kind of funding. Because, yes, there are outfits in Silicon Valley that are funding startups that are building sex bots or developing VR and so forth, but not really at the scale that, you know, big tech is, is able to develop things. Sure. And I mean, also, and you allude to this in your piece, that this is not simply a question of funding, but that in the future, in the year 2000, to cite one of my favorite Conan O'Brien <laughs> sketches, maybe... When we party like it's 1999. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And this, you know, this sexual experience could be brought to you by Coke, or how you have that sexual experience, or if you pay for it, or if it is somehow monetized. All of that is up in the air at this point. And there's no reason, again, putting aside conspiracy, well-founded, there's no guarantee that it won't be like that, given the current state of technology. Well, that's that's a really interesting part of the story. And I, I was sort of pressing MacArthur and Twist, who are the academics who have been putting forth this idea of digisexuality, about you know, what is the role of, of big tech, of surveillance capitalism, of all of that in this? And to be honest, they, they weren't thinking along those lines because they were more in this, 
struggle to be recognized and to have this stuff deemed appropriate enough to appear in app stores and to appear in the metaverse. And when are we going to you know, get over our prudishness and really deal with this stuff? And so they weren't even thinking that much about how it's going to you know, potentially be manipulated for the market. And so, but there are others who have been thinking about this and sort of imagining how we're, you know, jacked into our virtual sex party and we're all ready to go with our haptic sensors and our genital stimulators and, you know, our, our VR headpiece and, and, but suddenly we need to watch a lot of ads because as I said in the piece we mentioned in passing, we were looking for a sofa to a friend. And of course that got picked up in the ether and now we're getting ads, you know, from Wayfair while we're wait, you know, we're eager to get that next nipple lick. And, you know, <laughs> suddenly these ads are loading up. Or <laughs> interrupt us, exactly. literally. literally. The, other, the other way is that to get that next nipple lick, you have to pay for an upgrade, you know, so that's, that's another model. But yeah. um, yes, that's going to be the real question that one, one part of this idea of digisexuality, which we didn't really get into yet, but is sort of at the core of this the story is a kind of new identity that is being posited. One question is, you know, what will it mean for for individuals? And then what will it mean societally and for people who want to make money off of it? Yeah. The virtual whoremongers of the future. Yes, exactly. What are they going <laughs> to do? Well, so setting aside Emma the sex doll, at least for now, your piece mostly focuses on the academic work of Neil MacArthur and Marky Twist, who you've mentioned, who've coined this term digisexuality. And, and MacArthur in particular seems concerned with presenting digisexuality as a new sexual identity, not just an activity. And given that many of these sexual technologies are underdeveloped or barely existing, isn't it a little premature to kind of rush in and say, this is a new identity, this is a new kind of person? And and how would they respond to that question? And what do you think about it yourself? Well, to to be fair, I think they would say that, that digisexuality, that there have been two waves of digisexuality. And so the first wave is everything that's sort of been happening over these last years with computers and and technology having to do with you know chats having to do with skypes having to do with all the ways that we use technology to connect to other people and so that also would include teledildonics you know so someone not in the room controlling your sex toy that sort of thing on the other hand they would say that there's a kind of second wave coming and that's much more immersive and that often won't include other people. And so that's where maybe it becomes more like an identity. And they also would say, I think they would say to that, there is a continuum. So many of us partake in digisexual activities without being digisexuals, but there will be a core number of people who will identify as digisexuals. And that's a different thing. And I think their argument is why go through the phase of stigma and persecution if you don't have to. Right. Why not carve out a kind of protected space for for people now rather than wait for the, a lot of suffering to happen and then respond? Yeah. I mean, their view is, again, sort of going against expressed fears of, I don't know, Elon Musk making you pay to get a hand job or whatever. These two academics have this real utopian idea about this, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that they need... they 
it is a it is a fairly utopian idea. I think they kind of I don't think they're completely naive about it. I think that they just see that uh, it's kind of where we're going. People are going to be with their technology more and with people less. That's how they see it. And so, which is already happening. Yeah, and and there are good things about it too because there are a lot of people, and this is something that Twist talks a lot about because she grew up in a very remote part of Alaska, and she sees that you know there are a lot of reasons why people aren't able to get with other people. And sometimes it's geographical. Sometimes it has to do with disabilities. Sometimes it has to do with other kinds of personal challenges. But for for all sorts of reasons, these technologies can be a godsend for some people as well. And so I think that what they are trying to say is, you know, as this stuff gets more sophisticated and as people are able to rely on it more for, you know, some semblance of a healthy sexual life, they worry that sectors of society will mock them, persecute them, or worse, or you know, keep them from employment or whatever whatever kinds of things happen to people when they are marginalized. And so it's not necessarily utopian to want to, I think this is what they would say, to see a future where this kind of sexuality will exist and to want to protect the people or create a, a space for them to to live flourishing lives. Right. No, and I, I I would agree with that. I mean, on the other hand, there is something, not to cut you off, but I do, you know, I I am completely uh, swayed by that on in one way, but in another, you know, I do wonder how much of it is, is sort of creating an identity before it really exists. And, yeah. And can you really do that? Right. No, yeah. I, that's a totally... So I think that's what you're getting at. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, throughout the piece, you also note, and I think this there are sort of two prongs of this thing, right? Where there are organizations that, you know, you mentioned in the piece that are pushing back on this idea. Well, there's the campaign against sex bots. Is that yes. what you mean? Yes. yes. So the campaign against sex bots, very clear what they're against. Yes. And in a certain respect, it's a very fair concern that their group is opposed to sex bots on the terms that, you know, sex bots are a very specific, they look a very specific way. And they're also opposed to the idea that this, basically their concern is that this would lead to further objectification or violence against women and children and other other groups that are perhaps already vulnerable as it is within a patriarchal society like ours. And there's also the question of consent. Well, I mean, I think we're moving towards serious question. And this is what some of the science fiction has predicted, I think, but we're moving towards real questions about AI consent. Mm-hmm. We're not, I don't think AI is there yet, but I think that, you know, obviously someday it will, the question of consent will be a, a serious issue. But, you know, a lot of, a lot of the, I think the people doing work around the ethics of this stuff, think about, for example, you know, what if you build child sex robots? So as a way to treat or as help. a way to treat or help people who have those desires. And I think the term is maps, minor attracted people. So one argument would say, well, and twist would say, and we actually talked about this twist would say, yeah, build them because there are all of these people who have these desires. They're hardwired into them. They can't help it. And they don't act on it. She's talking about the. She's not acting. She's not talking about people who do act on it, but, some about people who don't, and maybe it could be a therapeutic tool. MacArthur might argue with that. I think you know he at least would would mention sort of a strain of philosophy that might 
fall under the term consequentialism, you know, and the idea that even if that were true, that it was, it did have a therapeutic benefit, you're still building something. And in a way, you're kind of making a, a statement about your society that you support this activity or you support this kind, you know, and that in sort of in principle, you you support it happening in, in to non AI entities to organics. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot there and there's a lot, a lot to work out. The sex bots are not really, you know, that advanced at, at this point, but, um, I mean, as I say in the piece someday, you know, they're very well, maybe may a rebellion and it might be the last rebellion. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, good riddance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hard, hard to argue. But yeah. I mean, and, and then of course there's also the argument that this would inspire like somehow, again, this idea, and th I think this comes with people who are opposed to pornography, that at some point it becomes not enough. There's an addictive quality to sex and sexual activity and that there would come a point where it was not it's not simply enough to have sex with a child robot. You would need to find an actual child and that would create uh, that would be a crime. And so it's, it, but of course you can't. But that's conjecture. Really. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's this conjectural thing. And that's where it's really, it becomes really hard to discuss these issues. Cause as you say, this technology is not there yet. And so we are kind of to firmly oppose or be firmly for something at this point seems a little. But we've seen strains of things appearing. So they're one of the uh, companies put out a, a sex spot that had these different personality settings. Frigid got, Farah. Frigid Farah. This got a lot of attention a few years ago. So, you know, we're starting to see these these issues pop up. Right. And could you explain what Fidget Farah So this, this was, a, this was a, a, a doll that had these different settings, personality settings. And one of them you could set it to was Frigid Farah, who didn't want to be touched. And so people complained that this was encouraging rape. Yeah. And I guess potentially you could argue that these researchers are – pretty actively helping to create the market for more radical and, and normalized forms of digital sex through, you know, their research and through their advocacy. And, and again, this is under the guise of more disinterested academic function of prediction and ethical consideration. But on the other hand, uh, Twist gave the keynote at a conference co-sponsored by a masturbation device called Handy. Again, getting to sort of like the delicious ironies of something that actually really happened. And so I'd be interested to hear your to hear you talk about the dynamics of this and whether it's really a good strategy to treat this future as an inevitability. Nothing's inevitable, I guess. We we might not even be here by the time the uh, <laughs> the handy is up from six hundred strokes a minute to a thousand, but. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. You know, I don't even I think that, you know, they feel they're at, they're on a frontier and they have to, you know, take their funding where they can. And if, a you know, a, a sex positive sex toy wants to uh, help sponsor a conference on, you know, new kinds of sexual freedom and liberation, they, I think they would be uh, I don't think they have a see any contradiction in that. As far as, you know, where they're coming from, there is a little bit of uh, there are different approaches between these two academics. I think that MacArthur is just generally more interested in, in some of the philosophical questions and some of the questions about sexual ethics in, in particular. And Twist is really coming at it from a place of being, you know, her specialty is family therapy and relational studies. 
And so she wants us to see technology in a kind of new way. She really wants us to get away from the addiction paradigm and stop seeing technology in general as this thing that we, you know, we have to push away because it's so bad for us mm. and to sort of accept it as a part, you know, in her, in her words, as a part of the family now. And she is, you know, in her talk, she used a lot of models from, you know, attachment theory and, and the like to really talk about how we navigate technology in our lives and, and how we need to sort of, you know, accept the ways that it's permeated our day-to-day existence. In her presentation, she talked about security objects and asked us if we had used security objects as a kid and talked about, you know, various kinds of uh, attachment experiments. She talked about Harry Harlow, 20th century psychologist who uh, did experiments with, with rhesus monkeys and creating these wire mothers and cloth mothers. And I think what she was trying to get at is that we can make human connections with inorganic material and so that 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 was part of her point that we need to kind of accept how much this stuff is already part of us and part of our part of and and you know she she talks in a very funny way about still having her first blackberry and now she takes it out sometimes yeah. and strokes it but her idea is we already have attachments to things to places to objects so you know to try to understand technology that way rather than as this scourge Right. Yeah. And it reminded me of a related developmental concept of the transitional object, which describes the child's blanket as a tool from transitioning from one stage to the next developmentally. So it's not in an end of itself or is an inherently healthy relationship. So does this work talk about sexuality as a transition or is it more in an end to itself? And if it's a transition, then what is it transitioning? I did ask that because I thought of the idea of the transitional object as well and wondered if it, you know, if this was a bridge to some more human connection mm-hmm. at the other end. And I I don't think I mean I I think that Twist sort of conceded that there the transitional object is is a thing, but I think that in in this case I think they both see this as, you know, where we're headed. It's not really about it's, you know, in some cases it might be therapeutic, in some cases it may be, you know, a stopgap. But for others, it's going to be their identity. It's for others, it's going to be because of, as we said before, geographical reasons or psychological reasons or for whatever reason, like, no, I, you know, and she was telling stories about, you know, people who bring their sex dolls to bars and prop them up next to them. And I'm not so sure like that would be that much fun to hang out with people doing that. But who knows? Um, well, you need to be tolerant. <laughs> but the idea is that some people are going to say and are already saying, and there is a, someone who actually I think calls themselves a robosexual, not a digisexual, which is another term, but who spoke at that conference. But yes, this idea that this is no, this is this is who I am. This is how this is how I relate, and it's actually not that different from how I relate in other aspects of my life. So why are you also getting? Uh, freaked out now when I'm not doing digisex, I'm doing, you know, digi reading, digi cooking. <laughs> well, digi, the other forms of digi connection, yeah, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. like the, and again, like, of course, every kind of really makes you think post, you know, about social media is like, it's not really social. And it's like, but it, it, it you are connecting with somebody, even though right. it is this simulacrum and it's incomplete. And, you know, over the course of the pandemic, we found out that 
really sucks and it's very depressing when that's the only thing you have but to have it as an option is extremely valuable and i guess to me that what's in what the the end game is is it it doesn't really because social media you're still ostensibly connecting with other people right and even if you're doing you know live cam stuff you're still i mean it's not really i wouldn't call it a connection but there is there is interaction with another human being that's yeah. happening. But there is a way where if, if you have a sex bot or you're just involved with some AI, maybe through some VR setup, but you're, you know, there really are no other humans involved. It's all programs. It's you and a bunch of programs. And we've seen this, you know, played out. No, another movie, of course, is her is, is a good example of this. But if that's really, you know, it is that the question then is that, an, you know, that's where you have to ask, is that an identity and what does that mean? Right. And I mean, um, her really just freaked me out because it just reminded me of like things bronies say. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like any of this dialogue would be taken from one of those forums. <laughs> but again, much to think about, uh, no kink shaming, et cetera. And y- you know, when you're in Las Vegas, your, your Uber driver gives you this statistic and it's a bad statistic that 80% of men did not have sex in 2021. But there was, however, some pretty widely reported data from the U.S. General Social Survey, and I think the New Yorker recently wrote about this, not as well as you did. You know, the, the share of men younger than 30 reporting no sex has nearly tripled to 28%. So is there any other data you could add to this picture of decreasing person-on-person, person-to-person action, as you call it? Yeah, I mean, I don't have any data for you. I don't have any numbers. But Get out. Sorry. I'm gone. <laughs> but I do, you know, I have teenage children. And I really, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know the answer to how many young people under 30 are having sex. But I, I read those articles, too. And I, I've seen uh, what is interesting is how in a lot of the some of, or not a lot, but some of the writing about sex and technology, the incel question comes up as a, you know, again, here's a panacea to the the incel problem you know and if you think about it not just in terms of you know the, the seething north american gamer but th- how there are a lot of young men around the world kind of locked out of out of sexual activity for you know lots of reasons that have to do with very traditional communities where you have to get married and to get married you have to have a certain amount of money to pay you know and so there are other reasons why young people aren't getting laid. And when young people, especially young men, aren't getting laid, they can often be mobilized for very nefarious purposes. And so, you know, some of the writing is about, well, if this stuff can proliferate and it can find its way among communities of, of young men to sort of deactivate them from from bad behavior, that might be a useful thing. You know, when I brought that up with Neil MacArthur, he was, you know, he said, look, this is about this bigger social experiment and this bigger, you know, new, new reality and new, a new way of being. And like, I'm, you know, I want everyone to find a healthy sexual outlet, but it, I don't want to concentrate on the needs of, you know, especially of, you know, white incels right. was his, was his point. Right. And I think the other important thing to keep in mind, and you bring up a very good point that, you know, sometimes it's demographic, sometimes it is class-based. This technology does not address those material concerns. Like, in the past, you know, 
the the sort of abundance of young men who are angry and sort of ready to fight, they would go off to war, right? And they would die. Yes, and that's not a good thing. But that's that's how society quote unquote dealt with the problem. And now we're in an era where that's not how war operates anymore. And these although people, maybe we're entering a new era <laughs> where that will be, but yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's hard, you know, we're flip-flopping, yeah. you know, Gen X makes fun of Gen Z for not fucking enough, like all this stuff, you know, all this stuff is subject to change, right? But again, there are certain material concerns. And I mean, I found this a lot with Me Too, where it was like, we opened up this discussion about these gray areas, or traditionally things that had been men thought were okay. And a lot of men learned that, hey, this is not okay. And some people took that well, and some people really shut down and became hostile for whatever reasons. I'm not here to speculate as to why. But at the end of the day, Me Too did not lead to new structures of reporting sexual harassment. It did not lead to new structures of, you know, dealing with someone in your life who abuses you emotionally or physically. Everything kind of stayed the same. It just became, you know, Twitter became, you know, or social media rather, became a way to to voice that this was a problem. But at the end of the day, the problem remains. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, we don't have to get into a whole conversation about Me Too. But I mean, I see it as there was a kind of initial purging of like really terrible offenders in institutions that were more amenable to that kind of turnaround. Mm-hmm. But then it sort of seems to have fizzled, I guess. Yeah. The, yeah. I mean, and of course, it's worth noting the irony that Hollywood, which of course, you know, all about image, all about projecting the rightness and being aligned with the more, more or less with the mores of society, has also been like one of the biggest generators of images of, let's say, violence against women, violence in general, the approach of let's say, the guy who hangs on too long and won't say no, won't take no for an answer and that, that being valorized. And those problems still exist in that industry. But we have, you know, like sacrificial, you know, egregious sacrificial lambs like Harvey Weinstein. And again, he's not the only one. Everybody knew. And there's still no really good way of dealing with these problems. And again, with this, you know, to bring it back to the sex technology stuff, these young men are still going to be unfulfilled in their life in a different way, emotionally, like unless there is a way to, to address that other problem, then I could see things going pretty badly. And, you know, maybe instead of becoming addicted to games, they become addicted to sex and like virtual sex. And that's that's not good. That's somebody's life wasted for no good reason. You know, well, it is. I mean, I, I tend to agree with you, but I'm just wondering if if the choices between no sex and virtual sex is, is the life wasted is the question. Right. That's a good question. Because what is the meaning of life? Go. <laughs> <laughs> That's my next article. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, it'll be very short. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, I also I think that I, it's hard to see things going well on so many fronts. But I, you know, I don't know. I I think that if there can be a way for some people to, you know, find a little bit of solace through technology, I guess where I ended up with the article was that while it was kind of easy for me to sit back and think this was just some kind of attempt by academics to to create some faddish identity or and also to be cynical about the, you know, the, the capitalistic uh, exploitation of of these technologies, 
I also know people are really lonely yeah. and people are really looking for some kind of connection and not getting it. And so I, I ended up kind of with a little bit of hesitation to, to, to bring down a real hammer of judgment on it all because, you know, I see, I see the pain out there. Right. Yeah. And again, I think that's what the, the statistic of decreased sexual activity, that's, that's a, a large part of it. There's that we are an incredibly lonely society and it's not just, you know, here, you know, in, in China, you could argue because of the one child policy, but of course this happened before then, you know, there was a lot of femicide of babies. And so now there's this disproportionately male, young male population and there are no women. And that's, again, that's, that's a really bad situation and that stratifies society and it creates haves and haves nots. And it, it just makes, again, everything is so bad <laughs> period, that it just makes everything so much worse. And I mean, I'm in, in thinking of places where, you know, perhaps there is a little bit of more leniency with, let's say, sex work or sexual activity, you know, going to Thailand. And I'm not again, I'm not going to talk shit about Thailand. Thailand is a wonderful place. However, you do see a lot of people there abusing that leniency yeah and 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 it's like well the question is are they doing that because they can't do it anywhere else or are they just doing it because that's like some hobbesian end game of like this is, you know humans are inherently nasty this is where it's always gonna end up I, yeah i don't know i mean and i don't know what this technology will do to sex tourism to real world meat space sex tourism either i think they also see, you know these twist and MacArthur do see this is a way for people to explore sexualities or orientations they might not have been able to explore before, too. So that's another side of it. Right. And I guess, you know, your your piece almost ends with an assertion that even though escaping into the, quote, warm, sticky horse carcass of technological intimacy, end quote, is understandable, in-person sex is still worth seeking. And I thought it was interesting that you wrote worth seeking instead of worth having, in, which in some way encapsulates the difference between these two activities. Is there anything more you feel like saying about this, you know, neo-humanist stance? No, because I think I said it so perfectly in the article. <laughs> That's the great part about being a writer is that you just like, you get, you, it's you in the Word document. You just keep going over and over. Yeah, I had days to get that right. Um <laughs> As opposed to now, I'm just like, go. <laughs> but it is interesting what you say about the seeking and the having, because yeah, I do, I did feel that like, yes, at your computer, you can have it. Whereas in terms of intimacy with, with other people, yeah, you have to gamble a little bit and gambling takes it has a role in this article as well, but, um, you have <laughs> a to, small role. Well, yeah, you have to, uh, <laughs> yeah. you have to leave your, you have to leave the room and go outside and that's an incredible risk. You have to take that risk. And uh, that, that is different. The seeking is not having. Seeking is no guarantee, but it maybe is what does give us some meaning. Well, is there anything else you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to? I don't think so. I mean, there were a lot of kind of funny parts of this story that we didn't really touch on but that had to do with kind of my experiences out in, in Vegas and uh, <laughs> dealing with the pressure that, I was feeling from both Harper's and others to have relations with a sex doll. And, um, <laughs> well, yeah, the, yeah, I mean, 
because I mean, obviously, part of having sex is pressure, a certain amount yes, of pressure and control. Lot, I was feeling a lot of pressure. Yeah. And then, you know, also in the article, I, I explore sort of discovering a gambling addiction I didn't know I had. So, you know, a lot of interesting things, uh, you know, bubbled up as they will when you go to Las Vegas for a weekend. Yes. It's funny to think you were only there for the weekend. Yeah. And that, yeah. yeah. Well, it felt like a long time, but it was just a weekend. Yes. The, 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 again, the magical manufacturer space of LV. Uh, but I don't know. I want to leave something for people to go and fucking Absolutely. read no, the article. I'm not, I'm not going to spill the beans, but. Yeah. Subscribe to this but it was magazine. A, it was a, it's not that expensive. It was a really, it was a, it was, I'm really grateful to Elizabeth Bryant for bringing me the story and for choosing me i don't know still don't know why she did but um i really i had a kind of model yeah i guess the only other thing i would say is i was very excited to get the assignment because one of my favorite novelists is uh was a, he's no longer with us but a writer named stanley elkin and he wrote some wonderful hilarious essays for harper's in the 80s and i was a huge fan of those and i loved how he was able to sort of get into the story with his kind of inimitable prose. And um, I always, you know, I kind of daydreamed at times about having that kind of space to work with in, in a Harper's type essay. And so not only was it Harper's type, but it was Harper's. So <laughs> Dreams can come true. They can come true. <laughs> with the help of technology. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. This was a real pleasure. Thank you, Violet. This was great. You've been listening to the Harper's Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is cut and shoot by Febrifuge. The New York Times called Harper's America's most interesting magazine. Receive elegant, insightful, and wry writing from the best journalists, essayists, critics, novelists, and poets every month in our print magazine, and gain access to our digital archive, which stretches back to 1850. Visit harpers.org slash save to subscribe for only $16.97.